I'm Alison Wilson, Linklater's Global Head of Dispute Resolution and Chair of our Investigations Cross-Practice Initiative. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Linklater's Investigations Insights podcast. In this podcast series, thought leaders and subject matter experts from our Investigations Network explore some of the challenges and complexities that specialists' investigation work can present and share best practice and guidance. Thanks for joining us. I hope you find the episode useful. Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Keary. I'm a partner in the Financial Regulation Group at Linklaters in London, and I'm joined today by Verity Kemp, who's a managing associate in the same team as me. Today, we'll be talking about the recent decision of the Upper Tribunal in relation to three individuals previously employed by Julius Baer. Perhaps, Verity, we should start by explaining the relevant background. Do you want to take this? Yeah, sure thing, Nick. Hi, everyone. Uh, so back in February last year, the FCA fined Julius Beer, or JB, as we'll call them from now on, £80 million for breaches of principles 1, 3 and 11 of the FCA's principles for business, as JB failed to conduct its business with integrity, failed to take reasonable care to organise and control its affairs, and was not open and cooperative with the FCA. I'll describe the breaches in a nutshell, but it's important to caveat here that these are the FCA's findings against JB. The upper tribunal's findings against the individuals differ somewhat, and we'll come on to discuss this in a bit. So, in a nutshell, the breaches that the FCA found arose out of what the FCA described as a corrupt relationship between JB and Russian oil companies between 2007 and 2014. The FCA found that JB had arrangements with an employee of Yukos Group, which used to be Russia's largest oil company, and JB would pay finders fees to this Yukos Group employee for introducing group companies to JB. In some cases, the Yukos companies were charged much higher than standard rates by JB, and the profits were shared between JB and the Yukos employee making the intros. The FCA said there were obvious signs that the relationships were corrupt and that JB's arrangements created, and I quote, circumstances in which financial crime of the most serious kind can flourish. So those were the FCA's findings against JB. Moving on to the individuals now. So three individuals working for JB were banned by the FCA from working in financial services for their involvement in these activities. And these individuals were Louise Whitestone, Thomas Saylor, and Gustavo Wrightson. The FCA found that these employees acted with a reckless lack of integrity. And it was these individuals that challenged the FCA's prohibitions in the upper tribunal. On the 12th of June, the upper tribunal handed down its judgment on the matter. Thanks, Verity. Now, the Upper Tribunal judgment is long and complicated. It's about it's well over 200 pages long, but it does have some quite important implications. So this is the TLDR version of uh, the judgment. The Upper Tribunal found in favour of the individuals, uh, allowing all of the references, and the judgment makes a pretty uncomfortable reading for the FCA. Now, ordinarily, the individual's conduct in a case like this would be dealt with through disciplinary action for breach of, for example, the statements of principle for approved persons or being knowingly concerned in a breach by the firm of its obligations. But one of the three individuals here was not actually an approved person at all. And it's also possible that the FCA would have faced limitation issues in pursuing disciplinary action against the other two. So instead, what the FCA sought to do was to seek prohibitions on the grounds of lack of fitness and propriety, 
citing that reckless lack of integrity that Verity referred to as the basis for the prohibition. But the upper tribunal found that the FCA had failed to demonstrate that the individuals had acted with recklessly or with a lack of integrity. The upper tribunal concluded that each of the individuals could certainly have asked more questions, taken greater care, acted with greater competence, if you like, but there was insufficient evidence on their view to establish a lack of integrity or recklessness. And in doing so, and in reaching these findings, the upper tribunal was highly critical of the reliance the FCA had placed on the version of events that JB had put forward, for example, the findings of its own internal investigations. And the FCA had also placed significant reliance on the evidence of a particular individual that the FCA had not investigated or called as a witness. The tribunal judgment is particularly uh, strident here, concluding that the FCA had swallowed what the individual had said, quote, hook, line and sinker, despite the fact that there were later doubts about the veracity of the evidence and the fact that the FCA had failed to step back and consider alternative or more plausible case theories uh, than the theory that they went with, which was that the individuals had acted without integrity. For example, the more obvious in the tribunal's view that uh, they, was, they had simply failed to take the requisite degree of care. Yeah, and as you've already mentioned, Nick, this case has some pretty important implications. So this case has come hot on the heels of another recent tribu upper tribunal decision in the case of Mr. Marco. Now, that was published earlier this year in April, and Mr. Marco also successfully challenged the FCA's ban for integrity failings. Although the FCA is seeking to appeal this Marco decision, the JB decision is the second case in quick succession where the upper tribunal has criticised the FCA for pursuing unjustified prohibition orders. And in light of these two decisions, the FCA will need to think carefully in future about whether it will actually be able to make out a case based on recklessness and a lack of integrity. It might be preferable for the FCA to focus on competence and capability, which Nick has already mentioned, but the FCA might need to do more in those circumstances to explain why there is a lack of com competence or capability that is so serious so as to justify a prohibition. The JB case has also provided a helpful clarification on the upper tribunal's views in relation to the test for recklessness. The upper tribunal rejected the FCA's argument that it was sufficient for the purposes of showing recklessness to show that a reasonable person in the individual's position would have appreciated the risk and that the risk was unreasonably disregarded. Instead, the upper tribunal said it was necessary to show that the individual actually appreciated the relevant risk, either from evidence of actual knowledge or inferences as to awareness from matters that would have been obvious to them. The upper tribunal concluded that the FCA was essentially trying to found a lack of integrity case on allegations of a lack of competence or negligence. Thanks, Verity. And there was also some pretty strong criticism from the upper tribunal about the delays that had taken place in the FCA's investigation. It had taken the FCA five years from the commencement um, of the investigation for a decision notice to be issued to one of the individuals. The upper tribunal encouraged the FCA to consider whether it's appropriate to continue with investigations if it doesn't have the resources to complete them within a reasonable time period 
or where it has decided that uh, the FCA's priorities lie elsewhere. Now, we all know that the FCA Enforcement Division is pretty stretched um, with the number of investigations that it has on, and any individual investigation team has often got multiple investigations underway at the same time. But um, this exhortation from the tribunal, together with the change in leadership, with the appointment of Therese Chambers and Steve Smart as joint executive directors in place of Mark Stewart, could potentially see the FCA pick up the pace of certain investigations and potentially be a bit more selective about which cases it decides to take forward to enable it to undertake those investigations in a more timely fashion. The other tribunal was also pretty scathing about the FCA's approach to disclosure in this case, uh, which, as we know from numerous other upper tribunal judgments, such as the Forsyth case, is not a new issue for the FCA. The upper tribunal was clearly pretty exasperated by the FCA's disclosure findings here, saying, and I quote, there are only so many times that the authority can apologise for its failings, insist that lessons have been learned, and then expect those affected should simply move on. The upper tribunal made a formal recommendation to the FCA to review the competence of those to whom the FCA delegates disclosure and the adequacy of their supervision. The upper tribunal also criticised the FCA's failure to call relevant witnesses, as Nick has already mentioned. The tribunal stressed that the FCA is not an ordinary litigant. As a public body, the FCA was expected to ensure relevant witness evidence was placed before the upper tribunal, even if that evidence might undermine the FCA's case theory. Yeah, thanks, Verity. I think the other thing this case highlights is um, that perennial debate about the regulator pursuing action um, against firms and individuals either concurrently or consecutively. And what's interesting here is that the upper tribunal's findings directly contradict many of the uh, findings set out in the final notice that was issued to JB last year that Verity referenced earlier, uh, because that final notice relied heavily on making findings regarding the conduct of the three individuals who challenged their prohibition orders. and uh, founded the case against the firm, often by attributing their conduct to the firm and, and attributing their knowledge and awareness to the firm. Um, the tribunal recognised the difficult position that this left both the FCA and JB in, uh, because the final notice represents a settled outcome between them. But the tribunal went so far in the judgment as to suggest that given its findings regarding the individuals, the FCA should think about potentially removing the final notice from its website and replacing it with a short statement explaining why the firm had been fined. Um, and it said that this was potentially necessary because leaving the notice up on the FCA's website would be unfair to the individuals. We have seen this sort of inconsistency before uh, between final notices issued to the firm and later findings against an individual. So the, the Achilles McCreese London Whale case is a good example of that. But this is, I think, is the furthest the tribunal has ever gone in trying to resolve how to deal with this difficult situation where inconsistent findings have been made and where the the case against the firm should is now called into question effectively through the, the subsequent findings of the tribunal. 
the other thing that the upper tribunal said here was that the FCA in taking action against an individual needed to think about the appropriateness of doing so on the basis of a version of events put forward by their employer, given the potential for conflicts of interest, and um, think about whether or not its own independent investigation had been sufficiently robust and rigorous. And on that, uh, there's been an even more recent decision, the, up, the upper tribunal's decision in the Bonk Havilland case, which exacerbates some of these difficulties. Um, there, the upper tribunal found that it didn't have jurisdiction to do anything about the FCA publishing a final notice without waiting for the upper tribunal to determine third party references. Uh, so that is a reference by a third party alleging that they should have been given third party rights in relation to the notice and uh, those representations should have been dealt with before the notice was issued. What the tribunal said about that claim was that the parties would need to effectively seek judicial review. But the tribunal said that um, despite its views on this point not being binding, in its view, uh, the FCA should wait until third party references have been dealt with before issuing the final notice. So it'll be interesting to see whether a combination of the, the JB observations and the Bonk Avalon's case causes regulators to really think again about how they deal with these concurrent um, uh, versus consecutive cases against individuals where, where a firm is also being investigated. That's really interesting. And just picking up on the point about relying on a firm's version of events, this criticism from the upper tribunal might lead to a greater reluctance on the part of the FCA to place weight on firm commissioned investigation reports. And Obviously, that's something the PRA will also be interested in, uh, given its recently proposed early account scheme, which, um, for those who are unaware, envisages the PRA relying more heavily on and, in fact, giving credit for early uh, firm commission reports. Yeah, indeed. It will be interesting to see how that one develops, Verity. So, um, that judgment that we said at the outset, it doesn't make for enormously comfortable reading for the FCA. How, Verity, has the FCA reacted to uh, the criticism in the judgment? Uh, not well. Uh, the FCA's response to the judgment is terse, brief and pretty defensive. Um, the FCA have reiterated that they've already had a successful outcome here with their firm case against JB and the importance of examining the conduct of the individuals involved in that case. The FCA also highlighted that the Upper Tribunal agreed with many of their arguments and said many of the delays that the Upper Tribunal criticised were outside of the FCA's control. There's a very brief reference at the end of the FCA statement to the disclosure issues, which I think it's fair to say they play down a little bit as a failure to disclose just one of thousands of documents uh, due to human error before saying that they do take the tribunal's recommendations on this point seriously and are going to review their disclosure processes. Yeah, it's quite interesting that the uh, response doesn't address uh, whether they will in fact take the JB final notice down and at the moment, the uh, decision notices in relation to the individuals remain up on their website un unaltered. But um, let's see where the FCA go with those recommendations and what they do next. Thanks, Verity, for taking us through some of that. Um, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about any of the topics we've discussed today or explore 
our work in relation to investigations more broadly, please do get in touch with either Verity or with me, uh, or you can visit the Linklaters Investigations webpage on our website. I hope you'll join us again next time for more Investigations Insights. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we've discussed today, or explore our investigation services more broadly, please speak with your usual Linklaters contact, click on the contact details provided for this episode, or visit the Investigations page on the linklaters.com website. I hope you'll join us again for more Investigations Insights.